What a joy, what a privilege it is to be assembled as your people, our mighty God, our great Redeemer. Our small hearts can scarce take it in at the same time how the joy of the Lord is our strength and yet how we are to walk in the fear of the Lord and know we are approaching and worshiping and serving a holy God who insists on being treated as holy by all who draw near, who has opened the way to us, a new and living way through the flesh of our Lord Jesus Christ, offered once for all for his people. Show us today where our thoughts are the world's thoughts and not yours. Humble us, purge our errors, fill us with your truth, and strengthen us for your service. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now for a, an introduction that's a little longer than usual, uh, we notice the question of the title of the sermon, Why Do We Do what we do. You know, I could pray, preach about eight sermons with that same title, and they'd all be completely different depending on who the we is. Who's we? We human beings? We Christians? We Americans? We Texans? We Houstonians? Who's the we? Well, in this case, what I mean is very particularly we at Copperfield Bible Church. Why do we at Copperfield Bible Church do what we do? This is what the kids might call kind of a meta-sermon, as a matter of fact, because it's going to be a very Bible-filled sermon uh, as part of our worship service about our worship service, and specifically about why do we do what we do? We'll be looking at that in the light of Scripture today and in great detail. Now, let's start with the big answer to that question. The big answer to that question, the big reason why we do what we do, I can give you in three Scriptures. The first is Matthew 16, 18, where the Lord Jesus says, and I also say that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. He does not guarantee such power to any other church than the one he builds. And this church that he announces is going to be his church. And he will build it. It is his conception, his invention, his design. And it's to be built his way because it belongs to him. And so approaching this church with any other question than what is the design of Jesus in making a church makes us something else. You follow me? If we're going to be this church, then our question is, what is Jesus' purpose in building this church? We find out more about that from Ephesians 2, verses 19 through 21. Ephesians 2, 19 through 21. So then, Paul writes, you are no longer strangers and sojourners. In other words, unable to approach God in his temple. You are no longer strangers and sojourners. But you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Listen, in whom the whole building, that building is the assembly, it's the saints assembled, in whom the whole building is being being joined together, is growing into a holy sanctuary in the Lord. So here we read of the Lord's sanctuary. There's only about three things that I, am, uh, that I regularly am a jerk about, although I try not to be a jerk in a very jerky way. But if somebody calls me reverend, I'll stop him. And as some of you can bear witness, if somebody calls this room the sanctuary, I'll stop him. I hope I do it nicely, but I will stop him. Because this room is not the sanctuary, although the sanctuary is in this room. Did I just contradict myself? No, this room is just a room, but the sanctuary is in this room. Sometimes the sanctuary is in the next building. What is the sanctuary? The people of God. This is what Paul says. We are growing into a holy sanctuary in the Lord. So this is talking about us assembled as a church, not us as individuals. Us assembled form the holy place of God in union with Christ. That's what makes the church. Not, not a, a, a list of bylaws and rules, but union, vital living union with Jesus Christ. This is where God lives. Not in this building, not in this room, but in this people. God lives in this people. We are a holy sanctuary uh, of Christ. He's worshipped. He dwells here. Third scripture, 
How do we do this? So it's very fine to say Jesus is building the church. It's very fine to say we're his holy place where he is to be worshipped. But what's the practical implementation of that? How do we do that? That's answered in Colossians 3, 16 and 17, among many verses. Words that are often misapplied to individuals. Now, they do have an application to individuals, but these words are actually addressed to a church. So hear what God says to the church. Colossians 3, 16 and 17. Let the word of Christ dwell in you, plural, richly, in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with gratefulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Now we're going to return to part of this uh, Scripture a bit later, but I want to highlight now verse 17. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to the Father through Him. What does that mean? Does that mean that you should get together, go on retreats, and come up with your vision for your church, and then paste the name of Jesus on that? Does that mean that we should uh, take a survey of what the world really wants in the church, and what would really bring people out, what they want to hear, what sort of service they want, what sort of things they want in it, and then put that together, and then paste the name of Jesus on that? After all, it says, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Is that what that means? Did I hear any no's? That's heartening to hear because that's the opposite of what that means. This means the opposite of that. The only way to do everything that we do in the name of Jesus is to start by asking, what does Jesus want? Now, let me be very specific about that because I know that many professedly Christian ears would filter that and turn that into, yes, that's right, we should pray and see how we feel Jesus leading us to act in church. Now, is that what Paul means? It is not. What what does verse 16 say? Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. How do we do what Jesus wants? How do we do all in the name of Christ? We've got to go to his word. That is the only way to see what he has said and what is recorded for us in Scripture as to what what God wants done in a church. That's what a church is. And so everything a church does should be traced to an attempt to do what Jesus says to do in the world. And that's what we're looking at right now. Why do we do what we do? Do we do it because of that reason? And the answer is we sure try to. And that's the explanation for everything we do in our worship. So we're going to start just from start to finish. And you'll notice that your bulletin is a little different this week. It's got numbers in it. And those numbers key to your outline. So as we go through the outline, it's key to different parts of the worship service in your bulletin. And we're going to start right from the start and ask the question, why do we start the way we do? Why do we start the way we do? The first question is, why music at 1040? Now, long-timers know we've explained this several times, but not everybody here is a long-timer, so let me explain. Why is there music at 1040? Is that just a nice thing to do, or is there a reason for that? Oh, there's absolutely a reason for that. There's a very specific reason for that. Why music at 1040 when the service starts at 1045? Basically because of what we are here to do. And what we're here to do is to worship God. That's what we come together for. We come together to worship God. Something that is often lost sight of in churches, but that is why we come together. Not to worship ourselves, not to be worshipped by others, but to worship God. And therefore because of what worship of God involves. What does worship of God involve? Again, three scriptures hammer home very important truth. John 4.24, the Lord Jesus says, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. In spirit and truth as opposed to what? As opposed to lip service. If we just say the right words and do the right formulas, well, that's worship. How did Jesus feel about lip service? People who worship with their lips, but their hearts are far away. How do you feel about that? He was really down on that. How about worshiping by mere formalism, that that merely by putting our bodies in this room and dressing a certain way and standing and sitting when told, does that make worship happen? Not if it's worship in spirit and truth. That may or may not, that will be part of it because we are in bodies. Our bodies have to do something. But why are our bodies doing what they're doing? Are we worshiping in spirit and truth? It's not lip service. It's not formalism. We can't do it by swinging incense and by dressing funny. And it's not by human tradition. 
Now, Paul was not an enemy of tradition if it was biblical tradition, but he was an enemy of man-made tradition, as was the Lord Jesus Christ. No, that's not spirit and truth. Spirit and truth is something very different. It can't be done on the outside. It must come from the inside. And Jesus says God seeks such who worship Him in spirit and in truth. And there's more. Philippians 3, verse 3. Philippians 3, 3, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Oh, there's so much there. First, let's just start with the fact that he's saying we worship by the Spirit of God. This isn't a supernatural act. It's not a magic act. Now, what's the difference between magic and supernatural? Supernatural is something not produced by nature itself. Magic is something produced by just saying the right words or doing the right gesture. I'm not saying that I believe in magic, but that's the idea of magic. And a lot of people think worship is magic. If they put their hind ends in the seat the, in the right way, then that's going to, they're going to worship. And worship can happen like that. So you can come tumbling in at, at 10.45, 10.50, 11 o'clock, whenever, and you just worship is going to start like that because you, did, you, you pulled the lever. You, you put your body in the right place. But no, spirit in truth is something that requires the inside of me. Worshiping in the spirit requires a relationship with the Holy Spirit. And look at what he also says. What does he say? We boast in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. But there are people who are coming to church completely depending on the flesh. What do I mean? Well, they expect the music to make them feel worshipful. They expect the, the entertainment, the, the quality of the professionalism up on the platform to make them feel worshipful. They don't have a personal buy-in or responsibility for preparation or involvement in worship. They're critics. They're an audience. They're consumers. They're not worshipers. Are you hearing me? There's a world of difference between coming to church as an audience and coming as a worshiper. A world of difference. And that is, uh, so, methods of the flesh, methods that are surefire guaranteed to stir up the emotions, that is not worship. That's something else. That's not worship. And the last uh, verse we're looking at in this section is very, very important. It's a little verse. You've probably read it as I have and gone right past it, but first, 2 Chronicles 12:14, talking about Rehoboam, Solomon's son, and explaining why he did evil. Now, listen to this. This is just very dynamic. And Rehoboam did evil for, for why? For he set himself to evil? No, listen. For he did not set his heart to seek the Lord. Why did he do evil? Because of something he did? No, listen, because of something he didn't do. What didn't he do? He didn't set his heart to seek the Lord. What's your heart? It's your mind. It's your, your volition. It's, it's, it's our affections. And because he didn't set his heart actively to seek the Lord, well, you know, like I've told you many times, the world, the flesh, and devil, they don't give up on you when you're converted. They don't say, oh, rats, we thought we had that one, but he's gone. Well, let's go find somebody else. No, 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 no. The world, the flesh, and the devil are open 24-7, 365. They don't close for Christmas. They don't close New Year's. And they don't close for COVID. They're going all the time. And they're vying for our attention and our affections all the time. And if we're to seek God, we need positively to set our hearts to seek God and not to hope it happens automatically with the right kind of music and formula and, and bodily motions. No, it's none of those things. It's our heart. And whose responsibility is it? Who is supposed to set Rehoboam's heart to seek the Lord? Rehoboam was. Who's supposed to set our heart to seek the Lord? The pianist, the orchestra, the worship team? We are. Because God seeks those who worship Him and not who watch worshipers but those who worship Him in spirit and in truth. Now, we could close in prayer right now, but that's just the introduction. <laughs> so, I did warn you, to be fair. So, why then the music at 1040? Well, you know what that means. If you hear the music, that means it's time to come sit down, be quiet, and prepare your heart. You come into this room where people are worshiping and praying. You come in quietly. When you hear the music, that means it's time to start preparing your heart, to take responsibility, prepare your heart. So you come in quietly, you sit down quietly, and pray. You pray for yourself. 
you ask God to worm, well, I would ask, where would I, I did have this struggle last week, and I struggle just like you. I need to take time just like you, probably more than many of you, and, and ask God to warm my cold heart and to capture my distracted attention and to lock me into Him, to think about Him, to be ready to, to look to Him and worship Him and praise Him and, and learn of Him, to be ready to show love and, and look for opportunities to serve uh, those I meet in fellowship. So, so you sit down when you hear the music playing. That, that means... If you already hear it, then you already should be sitting down and praying and seeking God for yourself. Pray for those around you. Pray for the orchestra. Pray for Chad and for me. Why? Again, because worship is not magic, but it is supernatural. And if anything good is to come of all this, even if we do all the things Jesus says to do, who gives the growth? We might plant, we might water, but who gives the growth? God gives the growth. So we must seek God to bless His Word, to bless His worship, to move in our hearts because it doesn't happen by magic. It doesn't happen even by all the right elements. So that's why the music starts at 1040. Letter B, why do we start at 1045? Not meaning that I can find that time in Scripture, but why start at a particular time and not just whenever we feel moved by the Holy Spirit? You know, um, that's the way we all thought in the 70s. I was saved in the 70s, and that's, that, that was the hippie mindset. But all the people who thought that way either grew up and started taking responsibility, or they've tilted off into heresy. So why do we start at a particular time? Two very simple reasons. First of all, because of who we are. I'm combining things in one reason. Because of who we are and what we're called to do. That's one reason. Because of who we are and what we're called to do. And that's spelled out for us in 1 Peter 2, verse 5. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, listen, to be a holy priesthood. To offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 2, 5. You're being built up into a, into a spiritual house. That is to say, a temple a place where God lives, and you are a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices. So Christians don't have priests. Christians are priests. And this is the third thing that I'm a jerk about. I, I don't call individuals saints unless I'm just calling every Christian a saint. And I don't call people priests. Even if a man is a priest, I'll use another title. Because there aren't priests. There's one high priest. Who's that? And there are lots and lots of priests. Who's that? All believers. We are a holy priesthood. We are a holy priesthood, Scripture says. And so we come as priests. We come as priests. Uh, and we offer spiritual sacrifices. So that's what we've come to do. Not priests come to spectate and hold up numbers judging how well we like the performance. We're the performers. It's ours to offer. What does a priest do? He worships. He makes offerings. He prays, right? He approaches God. So what are we supposed to do as a holy priesthood? Worship. Make offerings. Pray. Worship God. So why do we start at a particular time? Because of who we are and what we're called to do. And we're the priesthood and we should show up on time. Because we're the priesthood. We would expect the priest to be on time. The priest should be on time. We're the priests. So we've come to, uh, to offer worship. We've come together to offer worship. That's our calling. I'm going to return to that in a second, but give you the second first. Because we take our ministry seriously is why we start at 1045, a particular time. Because we take our ministry seriously. Our ministry, not my ministry, our ministry. Ephesians 4.16, listen very carefully. The LSB is really good on this verse. Speaking of uh, the body of Christ, that's us, and Christ is the head, and so Christ is head, Paul says, from whom the whole body being joined and held together by what every joint supplies according to the proper measured, properly measured working of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. So each of us has an important role because each of us is a priest, each of us comes to worship, and the growth of the body depends on what? 
the proper working of what? Each individual part. So each one of us has an important ministry. If somebody would say, well, it doesn't matter when I get there because I don't do anything important. You don't. Well, but you're, you're part of the priesthood. There to worship. Is that not important? In Roman Catholicism, it's not. But this is one of the biblical truths that the Reformation dusted off and held back up. The priesthood of the believer. Not a professional class that worships for us, but that we ourselves are led in worship and we ourselves worship. So just think about this. And these are not deep thoughts. One doesn't have to go to graduate school to think this. It's just common sense, I think. What would you think if I were regularly avoidably late? Now, notice those words. I choose them very carefully. Because everything, everybody has things happen that you can't control. Flat tire, get sick, you know, a child erupts, you know, things happen. I know things happen. I'm not talking about that. What did I say? Regularly, avoidably. What if I were regularly, avoidably late? Every Sunday, you know, you go through all the things that are before the sermon, and then it's the sermon time, and no me. <laughs> and I come wandering in casually, uh, 5, 10, 15 minutes late, waving at people as I make my way to the pulpit. Hi, oh, how you doing? Oh, it's good to see you. Yeah, okay, so uh, there's my pulpit. And then I come up and I start preaching. Well, you're very sweet people, and, and the, you'd think something very kind like, well, maybe he's lost his mind. Or, <laughs> or you'd think, well, but the thing you'd really think is, I don't think he takes his job very seriously. If I don't think it matters when I get here, obviously, I don't take my job very seriously. I don't take my role here very seriously. Well, what if we had a worship team, and members of the worship team were late as many churches have worship teams these days. What if the members of our worship team were late, habitually, avoidably, every Sunday? The team started singing, and one, two, three people would start wandering in three, five, 15 minutes late. What would you think? You'd think, well, they don't take their, their job, they don't take their ministry very seriously. Well, surprise, we do have a worship team. <gasps> You say, I didn't know that. We have a worship team like all the cool churches? Yes, we do. Who's the worship team? You're the worship team. We're the worship team. You and I together. We're the worship team. And so at any point, and I've heard people say this over the years, it baffles my mind when I hear it, but people complain about the quality of worship, like I'm going to do something about it. And, and I think, well, you should really talk to the worship team about that. If you, didn't, if you sang the great truths of Scripture and heard the great truths of Scripture preached with faithfulness and passion and were with people who were worshiping in spirit and in truth and you didn't feel anything, I'm suggesting the problem, well, you should talk to the worship team. Pick up your Bible, go find a mirror, and talk to the worship team about the quality of worship. Is that not just an application of what Scripture says? But you see, this idea of worship team, I think it's a terrible idea, and I think it comes from the entertainment industry, not, not Scripture. It comes from Hollywood, not Scripture. The idea that we need professionals to get up and do professional quality worship. Now, do not hear me saying anything. Every musician in the, in the uh, orchestra is really good, and I'm thankful for all of them, so don't take that, but the idea that there needs to be professional singers who sing louder than everybody, you don't even hear yourself sing, but that's okay, because that's not what you come for. You come for a quality entertainment worship experience, and so you got the quality singers up here singing with quality. They're professionals. Many, some of them might not be going to that church if they weren't paid to, and the guy leading the music, he wouldn't be there if he wasn't paid to be there, and so, but you wanted professionals, and that's what you got. You got professionals leading your worship while you watch them. Well, brother, sister, I just want to tell you, we're the worship team, we're the priesthood, we should take our ministry, we do take our ministry seriously, and that's why we show up so we can all start together our ministry of worship and sacrifice. And now we've got the service started, <laughs> we're on letter C, like I said, fire hose. Letter C, why does worship start with scripture and prayer? Why does worship start with scripture and prayer? First, because we respond to God by responding to God's Word. Because we respond to God by responding to God's Word. When was a worship wars or something we all chuckle with tears running down our cheeks about? When was the first worship war? The first worship war is in Genesis chapter 4. That was the first worship war. And the two worshipers with two styles of worship, Cain and Abel, 
Hear what Hebrews 11.4 says about Cain and Abel. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he was approved as being righteous. God approving his gifts, and through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. True worship was by faith, and what is faith? And I would hope that after these last months, every regular attender would say, well, faith is our response to the word of God. Faith is what happens when we hear the word of God, understand it, believe it, and submit to it. That's what faith is. And so Abel's worship came from a heart of faith submitting to God's word. But what was Cain's worship? It was what he wanted to do and thought God should be content with. Aren't I right? Isn't that just what the text says? He brought, uh, Abel brought the first of his flocks. Uh, Cain brought some of his, the fruit of the ground. And when God accepted Abel's and not his, did he humble himself and, and lie in the dirt before God and say, oh, I wanted to please you and I'm just heartbroken I didn't. Where have I gone wrong? Show me. Is that what Cain did? No, he wanted his participation of word. Cain had great self-confidence and self-esteem. Cain wanted to live his best life right now, and he wanted God to sign on to it. And he thought God should just be grateful he was offering to him at all. And I've gotten this, by the way, in some discussions when I talk about the things I've already talked about, and someone will come in and say, oh no, you should just be grateful that anyone shows up. Well, I shouldn't feel anything particularly. It's God that worship is about. I mean, that just shows the whole wrong idea of what worship is. It's about God. Should God feel lucky we showed up to worship him? <laughs> That's not how I see it. And so should God have felt lucky that Cain thought about him? Well, he didn't, and he told Cain to repent of his sin, and Cain didn't, and we know how that went. That was the first worship war. One had a great contemporary idea about how he felt worship should happen, and the other thought he should do what God said. And one pleased God, and the other didn't. We should learn. So that's why it starts with Scripture and prayer, because we respond to God by responding to God's Word. And secondly, because we worship, listen, we worship at God's invitation and on His terms. We can't worship Him unless He invites us to worship. He's God. We're dependent on Him. We're, we're beholden to Him, not the reverse. So we worship at God's invitation and on God's terms. How strongly does God feel about His terms? I call to the witness stand Nadab and Abihu. Nadab and Abihu, could they tell you how strongly God feels about worshiping on His terms? What did they do? Leviticus chapter 10. They're priests. They are priests. And God hadn't forbidden them to bring strange fire. And they felt moved to do it. They thought it would be a great idea. They thought it would... Oh, I, I don't know what they thought, but obviously they, they didn't expect to get in trouble for it. They thought it was fine. So God had not called for it. And they just brought it. And how did that work out for them? Not well. God burnt them up like that. They did their little personal style of worship and God burnt them up just like that. And why did He? Well, the text says they offered strange fire before Yahweh which He had not commanded them. Oh, that's worth underlining. This, God did not like them worshiping in a way He did not ask them to worship Him. And what else did He say in verse 3? By those who draw near to Me, I will be treated as... Does anyone remember? As holy. And the only way to treat God as holy is to revere His Word and worship Him the way He says He wants us to worship Him. And so, a worship service starting with the Word of God, being called to worship by the Word of God, puts us in that mind. This worship's about God and it's on His terms. It's not about me. I'm here to worship Him by His invitation on His terms. And that's why the Word of God, God has the first word in our worship service, God has the middle word in our worship service, and God has the last word in our worship service. That, that is by design to reflect this truth. All right, Roman numeral two then. Why do we sing the way we do? Why do we sing the way we do? And if you say it's because we don't have a very good song leader, you might be right, but that's not really why. That's not really why. Letter A, let's just start with the basic question, why sing at all? I mean, isn't that where we should start? Why sing at all? And I can tell you honestly that a number of pastors confess 
that because of all the because honestly, friend, whatever way you sing, somebody's going to hate it. Honestly, I mean, you just need to know that. Whatever you, whatever way you sing, somebody's going to say that's the wrong way. If you don't sing this way, you're going to die. And the other person says, if you do sing that way, I'm going to leave. And that's the way it is. And honestly, can you forgive us pastors for sometimes thinking, you know, I think I can solve this problem. We just won't sing at all. <laughs> we'll get together and we'll pray. Then there'll be complaints about their prayers. Too long, too short. But anyway, we'll get together, we'll pray, we'll have a sermon, take offering, and then go home. And we won't sing at all. So why don't we just do that? No more fighting. Why not just do that? Well, no, that's the question. Because God's people have always sang. God's people did sing. God's people do sing. God's people will sing. Do you think I have scriptures to show that? Turns out I do. Exodus 15, verse 1. What do the believers do when God has parted and closed the Red Sea for them? Exodus 15.1, Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to Yahweh, saying, I will sing to Yahweh, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he's thrown into the sea. Well, they could have all just called out in praise, and that would have been great. Millions of people calling out different things in a happy little chaos. Something to be said for that. But they wanted to do something they could all do at the same time. So that not just as a bunch of mavericks, they do whatever they want to God, but as a people, they worship God. Are you following me? Is anybody following me? A song makes it so that a people can worship God. So they're singing the same words, praising God for what he's done. Psalm 21, 13. Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your power. And there's just bunches of uh, verses like that in the Old Testament. God's people sang to God. God's people sing to God. Ephesians 5.19, what happens when we're filled with the Holy Spirit? Well, we'll be speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your hearts to the Lord. Ephesians 5.19, God's people sang, God's people sing, God's people will sing. Revelation 5 verses 8 and 9, we were just there last week when they take the scroll and the, the, the lamb comes forward Oh, the worshipers in heaven fall down on their faces. And verse 9 says, They sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seal. They all sing. God's people sang. God's people sing. God's people will sing. God says to do it. And God's pleased with it. So that's why we sing it all. All right? Letter B. More specifically, why do we sing what we sing? Now we're going to go back to Colossians 3.16. We're going to look at that closely. Colossians 3.16, why do we sing what we sing? Well, what are we supposed to be singing? Now, see, now here, this is the question I, I dare say that a great many music critics could, would be shocked even to be asked. What does the Bible say? I, I hear that you have very firm opinions about what should be sung. What does the Bible say about singing? What does God say is important to him about singing? Is what's important to you about singing the same thing that's important to God? about singing? If you didn't even know the answer to the first question, then I guess not, right? Because you just were confident you knew what should be done without ever having studied Scripture about it. So this, from the very start, is the wrong way to approach worship, right? Starting with me. What do I feel is right about worship? So I need to start, if I'm going to do all in the name of Christ, I need to start with what he says. What does he say it's important? And then when I, if I see what he says is important, and I say, well, that's not the same as what's important to me, then which should change? So Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly with all wisdom. Look, this is songs. This is what songs are supposed to do. With all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So as a good sermon does, a song, a hymn, should teach and admonish one another. Not just make us all happy, but teach us and sometimes chew us out. That's what admonish means. Warn one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with gratefulness in your hearts to God. The singing I do, the gratefulness I'm responsible for, and the songs I pick should be doctrinally rich and Christ-centered. Did you, did you hear that? They should be doctrinally rich and Christ-centered. What a novel thought, Pastor. Where did you get that? I got that from the verse we just read. <laughs> Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly and sing songs that teach and admonish one another. So, the songs we sing should be doctrinally rich and Christ-centered, and if we're that, we should be perfectly able to use it 
to sing with gratitude in our hearts to God because that's, that's God's criterion. Now, I tell you, the way they sang is certainly not the way we sang. The style is not the thing. The content is the thing. So, first then, what does the Bible say the purpose of songs is? And this is the question. This should be the first question we ask and the last question we answer. What does the Bible say is the purpose of songs? Does it say the purpose of songs is to make us feel something so we don't have to take responsibility for ourselves? That we should put a a holy quarter in and pull the holy lever and something makes us feel holy. No, it, it doesn't say that. Is the purpose of songs to teach us and to be used by us with an attitude of grace in our hearts, addressing one another and God? Is that what it's for? Trick question, that's just what the verse says. That's what it's for. And and I, I tell you, I tell you with with such earnestness. Too many churchgoers get their ideas about worship from the entertainment industry and not from Scripture. They get their idea about worship from Hollywood and not from Scripture. Well, what do we do? What are we accustomed to doing from our youngest day? We're accustomed to go to a movie or sit in front of our TV set. What do we do? We go in and we sit down and we make ourselves comfortable and then we wait for the movie to start and make us feel things. While we just sit there and we expect it to be professional, we expect it to be slick, we expect it to be well done and effective. And if we go away not feeling anything, it was a bad experience. We're sorry we wasted our money on it. See, but that's, that's what it does. It's professional. We go in, we're passive in front of our TV, passive in front of a music screen, and why should church be any different? Because after all, we go to church like we go everywhere else, as consumers, expecting to be served as consumers. And so, worship service should make us feel things. It should be professional, it should be slick, and it should be the way we want it. Just like Burger King. But you know, there's a king in the church, and it's not a burger. it's, It's Christ, and it's He who we're to please, and not ourselves. We're to come in and engage ourselves in worshiping Him by His invitation on His terms. And so, do you see once again the importance of preparation for worship? Why the music starts at 1040 to to tell us sit down and start getting yourselves ready quietly, prayerfully. Because worship is not like a husband's hurried peck on the cheek on the way to work. Well, I say it isn't. Let me rephrase that. Shouldn't be. But so often it is, isn't it? We just barely squeeze it in and all we've got time is to peck God on the cheek on our way to what we really want to do with the rest of the day. And that's not really what we're called to do. It takes preparation. It takes setting our heart, getting ourselves in the right frame to worship in the Spirit. Last, letter C, most specifically, why include older songs? Is there really a biblical reason for that? Yeah, there really is a biblical reason for including older songs. Psalm 22, verses 4 and 5. In this song we read, In you our fathers trusted, they trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. How do they know that? Because the fathers passed down this faith and experience of God to teach the following generations. And they did it in song. Psalm 44, verse 1. O God, we have heard with our ears, our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old. And what are many of the Psalms? They're records of these deeds to be sung by successive generations. Written around, 10, uh, around 1000 BC, 10,000, not quite, around 1000 BC and sung for centuries afterwards and still by many Christian churches and, and they're still in our Psalms and hymns. So, these are the testimonies of our fathers to us. And one more I'll just pluck from Psalm 78, verses 2 through 8, but encourage you to read it later. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things we've heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord. And he goes on to say that God commanded, he, he appointed a testimony that the fathers should teach the children that the next generation might know him, and children yet unborn might arise and tell their children. This is what God wants. He wants the testimony of the ages to go down and encourage faithfulness. And when we sing songs written in 275, 1875, 1775, uh, as well as more recent songs, 
well, no, let me talk about the older one. This is the one I'm talking about why they're part of our service. When we sing these older ones, what are we doing? We're singing our Father's testimonies to us about God's, about God's faithfulness. We're doing just what this says. Listen, friends, this is a, a particular failing of our doctrinal neighborhood of Christianity. What, 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 what is that failing? It's sometimes we act like we invented Christianity like five minutes ago. Really, that's true. I mean, I've been a Christian a good while, and I've come to see that. We act like we invented Christianity like five minutes ago, and so it's entirely up to us to say what it is. Now, I tell you, that attitude is arrogant, and of course it's wrong, but even worse, it it robs us of decades of proven, fire-refined faith and testimony that we have in these songs. And we rob our children of what our brothers and sisters have sang to encourage and admonish and teach each other, like Scripture says, uh, for the last 1,800 years. Christianity's been around about 2,000 years, not uh, about uh, 200 minutes. So listen, listen closely, please. The people who wrote these songs and the people who sang these songs from the 16th, 17th, 18th, 19th century. These people were, were, listen, these people were literally ready to go to death for their faith. And many of them did, singing these hymns. They were ready to face prison and jail and dungeons and torture for their faith. They were ready to go to the flames for their faith. And we cringe before microbes and disapproval and mockery. That's all it takes to shut us up. So this makes me kind of want to say, you know, I want what he's drinking. I want what he's drinking. I want what he's eating. Because I look at the production of their worship and the kind of iron, (laughs) tough, bold individuals who sang these songs, and I think, I think we need that. I know I need that. I think we need that. And these songs that served in wartime and persecution and famine and plague, they still serve just fine. Why do they? Because they teach and admonish in all wisdom. Because they're doctrinally rich and they're full of Christ. And because the purpose of them is for us to use them to teach and admonish each other and to worship God. That's the purpose. And when somebody says, well, I don't like that style. Well, it wasn't the style in the 40s either, but they sang them. It wasn't the style in the 20s. It wasn't my style. When I was saved, I was just into rock and roll. I still am. But I didn't go to church to be entertained. I went to be taught and discipled. And when I heard Rock of Ages and Holy, 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 I didn't say, well, that's not very like Chicago. Not at all. I thought, I just, tears and, but that's what they're for. You know, like a guy buys a, a New York, a New York, buys a porterhouse steak. It comes back in a couple of days to the butcher and he says, this is worthless. And he plops it down. It's all mangled and stuff. The butcher says, why is it worthless? It's really good steak. And the guy said, you know, I tried to drive 10 different kinds of nails with that thing. And it never worked. It just squish, 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 and look at it. Well, what's the problem? That's not what it's for. <laughs> That's not what it's for. People say, well, these songs don't make me feel this or that or the other. That's not what they're for. They're for teaching and admonishing one another and for praising God. Do they do that? Well, that's what they're for. Now, I will say that if the truths of God, if singing nothing in my hand I bring simply to thy cross I cling, naked come to thee for rest, if if singing these don't do something to us, well, then again, I think we should look up the mirror because these these are rich truths that should deeply move us and it's not the music if it doesn't. So, that's why we include the older songs along with other songs. I need to move on. Number three, why are there opportunities? In other words, why is, why is there announcements? Uh, yes, I mean, actually, is there a biblical purpose for that? Yeah, there actually is. Not just, it's not a commercial or a filler. Why are there opportunities? Acts 2.42, we can be pretty quick about this. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And what is, what are the opportunities about? What are the announcements about? Romans 12.11 urges us not to be lagging behind in diligence, but 
being fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. In other words, looking eagerly for opportunities to serve God. So they devoted themselves to fellowship. They looked eagerly for opportunities to serve God. And Ephesians 4.16, one more time, the whole body grows by what each individual part does. Each individual part doing its part for the growth of the body. And what are the opportunities? That. That. They are telling us when we can get together for fellowship, and they tell us what opportunities there are for service. So do they have a biblical purpose? Yes, they do, or we wouldn't do it. So, that's the purpose. Number four, why is there prayer? Again, I probably don't have to spend a long time on this. The Bible says to. <laughs> that's why. But 1 Timothy 2, 1-3, we just read that Paul said, I wrote this letter to tell you how to behave yourself in church. What to do as a pastor in church. Well, 1 Timothy 2, verses 1-3, through Paul urges that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. Verse 3, this is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. So, why do we do that? We do it because God says to do it. He says it should be part of our service. We should pray together. And so we do. Number five, why is there an offering? My hippie age didn't like that much, and so we did away with it. Why is there an offering? Well, I could simply say, because that's what priests do, and wouldn't that be a good biblical answer right there? But I can say more. But I mean, that's what priests do. Priests offer. They offer praise. They offer thanksgiving. And they give material offering. It, it's because this is what God's people have always done. Abel did this. Proverbs 3.9 says, Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Proverbs 3.9. 1 Corinthians 9, verses 11 and 14. Paul says, speaking of, of the support of pastors and of, of Christian workers, If we've sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things for you? He's just frankly baldly saying about why uh, it is right financially to support uh, pastors, Christian workers, evangelists. Verse 14, in the same way the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. And then 2 Corinthians 9, 7 says, God loves a cheerful giver. So God's people have always done this. Isn't this what the the people did in the days of the tabernacle? Moses let them know they needed materials to build the tabernacle. And do you remember what he had to do? He had to tell them to stop bringing. Can you imagine if we started a building fund and in a few months I had to get up in the pulpit and say, okay, stop giving. We've got enough for the building fund. But this is exactly where Moses found himself. We've got more than enough. Stop. But... God's people wanted to give to the service of God. And that's why we take an offering. It's what priests do. They give offerings. That's why we call it an offering. Number six. Why do we stand and read Scripture? Two different things. Why do we read Scripture and why do we stand while we do it? Because we see both in Scripture. Uh, 1 Timothy 4.13 we read together. 1 Timothy 4.13 Paul says to Pastor Timothy, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture to exhortation and to teaching. So that's reading Scripture and then preaching Scripture. Uh, So do that. And then why stand? Because we see that done in Scripture. And so we we are admittedly following the practice. We see it in Nehemiah 8, verse 5. Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. So he opened the book of the law to read it, and everyone stood in respect as he read the book of the law. So that's why we do that. Nehemiah 8.5, Jesus did that. Luke 4.16, when as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath, he stood up to read. So we stand and we read Scripture for those reasons. Number seven, probably in this church I need to spend the least time on, so I'll, I'll touch on it. Why does the pastor preach a Bible sermon? Why does the pastor preach a Bible sermon? Why does the pastor preach a Bible sermon? First, he's commanded to, period. He does it because God says in so many words, that's, that's, that's your job, do that. First Timothy 4.13, again, read the Scripture, exhort with the Scripture, 
and teach with the Scripture. That's the pastor's job. And then this that we've looked at many times, and I think I preached my first sermon on here nine plus years ago. 2 Timothy 4, 1-7. through I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing in His kingdom, preach the Word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. And just to summarize, he goes on to say, because the time's coming when nobody will want to hear it. Well, now that's exactly the point at which you form a committee and you find out what people do want to hear, right? Because the most important thing is to have a big church that's getting bigger. Because, um, oh, I forget, the, I forget what the commercial says. A, a big church. What's that commercial? Is it the Astros games? Like a big church can do big things or something like that. And so we, we need to make a big church. I mean, obviously in America, if, if you're not popular, you're failing. If you're not growing, you're dying. And so we need to find out what people want. You know, and they don't want Scripture anymore, so what do we do now? But Paul says expressly they won't want. And so what do you do when they won't want? Keep doing what God told you to do because he starts off the, the chapter saying, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. In other words, remember where you're going to end up. You're not going to end up before the court of public opinion, but you will end up before a court. <laughs> but it's going to be the court of the living God and of Christ Jesus. And this is what he tells you to do. Preach the word. People will go off looking for what they want and they will leave you, but you just keep doing what God called you to do, which is to preach the word. And uh, verse 5, be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. Why does he say that? Does he say that to, to brag? Yeah, that's, that's totally Paul, right? Bragging all the time. No, why does he say that? Because he's telling Timothy, I want you to end that same way. And here's how. I'm facing my death and I'm facing it with joy in my heart. I want you to do that same thing. Here's how. Whatever people want, preach the word. Whatever they demand, preach the word. Whatever they pour out for, preach the word. So, first of all, because he's commanded to. And secondly, because he's got a threefold goal. His goal, first of all, is to glorify God. John 16, 14. How does John 16, 14 teach us how to glorify God? Well, it's because it's, it's what Jesus says the Holy Spirit does to glorify Him. How does the Holy Spirit glorify Jesus? He says, He will glorify Me, for He will take what is Mine and declare it to you. So if the Holy Spirit glorifies Jesus by taking Jesus' words and declaring it to the apostles, how shall I glorify Jesus? Same way. By taking the words of Jesus and declaring them to you. So that's the first goal of a pastor. To glorify God. Secondly, to disciple believers. Because that's the charter of the church. Matthew 28, verses 18-20. through 20, Verse 19 specifically says, Go make disciples of all nations. And remind me, don't say follower. What is a disciple? What's another word for disciple? Student. People who learn. So he says, make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. This is, the, this is the church that Jesus is building. He says, in that church, you teach them my words. Make disciples. And Ephesians 4, 11 and 12, the reason he gave the pastors and teachers is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. I guess that's a fourth thing I'm, I'm a little jerky about if somebody calls me a minister. I'll say, well, I am a minister like every other Christian. We're all ministers. That's not a distinctive title for a pastor. Pastor is a distinctive title for a pastor. But we're all ministers. And the role of the pastor is to train ministers. And that's what this is. This is exactly what I'm doing right now. I'm training priests. I'm training ministers. As a priest and minister myself. Right alongside you. Kind of like Pete Rose, a player manager without the gambling. Anyway, sorry. Don't encourage me. So firstly, his goal is to glorify God. Secondly, to disciple believers. And thirdly, to evangelize the lost. 1 Corinthians 14, 23-25 says that's what happens when we're preaching the Word in a church uh, meeting. You talk in tongues and an unbeliever comes in, he says, he'll think you're all nuts. But if, if he's hearing the Word of God everywhere he goes, then he says he's convicted by all, he's called to account by all, the secrets of his heart are disclosed, 
and falling on his face, he worshiped God and declared that God is really among you. So that's why I preach the word. Yes, primarily to train the, the saints, but also that unbelievers come in hearing God's word will find it piercing their hearts and will be drawn to Christ. Uh, I'll give you an extra scripture, no extra charge. 2 Corinthians 5.20 So then we're ambassadors for Christ as God is pleading through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. He says this in the middle of a letter to a church. So you don't, you don't ever not evangelize. And that's the third purpose. To glorify God, disciple believers, evangelize the lost. Well, we've taken it through most of the service. Uh, I guess there's nothing left. Oh, wait, there's one more thing. Why is there a benediction? There's even a reason for the benediction? Yes, there's a reason for the benediction. Because they're biblical. One of them is in Numbers 6, through 27. That's an Old Testament benediction. But I tell you, the letters of Paul are full of benedictions. Uh, as you see very often at or towards the end of his letters. But uh, Numbers 6.22, Yahweh spoke to Moses saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them. And then he gives them things to say, invoking the name of God. Yahweh bless you and keep you. Yahweh make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. Yahweh lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And then he says, So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel and I will bless them. So why do we close with a benediction? Well, what is our benediction? If you've studied them, you'll notice that they're, they're always either scriptures or they are rewording. They're, they're, to use the modern word, they're mashups of scripture. They're either just a plain Bible verse or verses or they're a combination of Bible verses. And so that way, very really, God has the first word, the middle word, and the last word in the sermon. And that is designed to make it worship and not entertainment. So, the conclusion will also be a little longer than usual as the introduction was. I was tempted to give this this sermon another title, but instead I made it the subtitle. The title is, Why Do We Do What We Do? And I've just shown you from Scripture, piece by piece, why we do what we do. The subtitle is, it's a feature, not a bug. It's a feature, not a bug. There are people who have been critical over the years of some of this and that that we do, that the cool churches don't do, the popular churches don't do. And I even knew of somebody who came here for a while, long gone, but he was always embarrassed because if he brought somebody, his Christian friends would actually mock him for going to this church because this church was so not cool. And the churches they went to were so much cooler. And so they'd ask him, you still go to that church? Now here's the thing that troubled me. That bothered him. That bothered him. He thought that he felt hurt and he took it. He thought that they were making good points. See, I want to make, do everything I can so that none of you would feel that way. Because there's no reason to be bothered or to feel put down. Because we're doing what God calls us to do. And the things that they mock as bugs, they're not bugs. They're features. They're deliberate. They're for a reason. Now, let me be very plain and very clear. Am I saying that our way of doing it is the only way? Well, our way of doing these things is far from the only way. I absolutely believe with all my heart that there are thousands of faithful churches meeting and doing these things uh, differently and perfectly pleasingly to God, perfectly uh, glorifying to God. But notice what I said, doing these things. Doing these things is the only way. Not necessarily doing them the way we do them, but to worship, should God's word be central? Should the songs be doctrinally rich and Christ-centered? Should we pray? Should we read scripture and all the other things we talked about? Yes, that's the only way because that's what scripture says. Could our way ever change? As far as our priorities goes, God helping us, no. But as far as the way we do things, sure, if we learn and grow to find more effective ways to do this, or as people pour into our church with abilities and talents that will help, uh, help uh, augment us doing these things, yes, I can certainly see that. If the complexion of the congregation were to change and more were to be brought in by people coming in and sharing our convictions and wanting to serve and bringing their own unique contribution to doing these things, absolutely. But the idea that, no, we really need to hire professionals who don't share our convictions, but we'll come if we pay them so that we can have a more professional worship. 
does not appeal to me at all, and I hope I've explained to you why. So, why did I do this, take time to do this? Honestly, the reason why I did it, and I thought it would be a good thing to start the year with, is because I believe we're heading for hard times. I don't think it takes a genius to see that. In America, I think we're headed for hard times. Look at, look at Canada and see us in a couple of weeks, where they're about to pass a law making it illegal to preach what the Bible says about homosexuality and sexuality. Go to jail if you preach what the Bible says, or if you even say what the Bible says. And you think we could never go there? I'll tell you what, 100 years ago, Americans never would have thought we are where we are, that we could be where we are. No, we're headed for hard, I, we don't know what hard times are. We barely know what hard times are. But we're headed for hard times, and part of, my prep, part of the purpose of the church and my purpose as a servant of Christ is to prepare you for hard times. And this kind of service is designed to prepare you for hard times, to give you battle-tested, fire-refined tools that are scriptural and true that will take you through whatever's coming, that will make us the sort of people ready to face flames, fire, death, and shame for the name of Christ and sing while we do it as our forefathers did it. And because every one of you, finally, because every one of you believer priests should be able to explain why we do what we do to anybody. And you should be able to do it boldly, happily, robustly, convictingly, and convincingly. Why? Because we're all believer priests and we all worship the same great God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this, your word, and how clearly it speaks to us. And we pray that we will be humbled and, and have the spirit of Samuel who said, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. You have spoken, Lord. Grant that your servants listen and that we grow. And we grow in our, the strength and the fruitfulness and the boldness of our faith that you might be all the more glorified and that all might see that you are a God and the only God worth worshiping and serving. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.